0: Hello, and welcome to the latest IFG live podcast. Uh, Today, we're going to bring together the two big stories, if you like, of 2020. Brexit, which we all thought when we started the year would be the thing dominating the news headlines. Uh, After all, Brexit was done on the 31st of January when we terminated our 47-year membership of the EU, but this was supposed to be the year when the government finalized what our new start, as it likes to call it, would look like. But that has been rather knocked out of the water in 2020 by the second big preoccupation. Instead of focusing this year on Brexit, this has been the year of the pandemic. We have to go back to the Spanish flu in 1918 for a public health crisis of a similar dimension, back to the early 18th century for a bigger economic hit but we all know uh, that as we move forward into 2021 we are simultaneously going to not just have left the political institutions of the eu which we did on the third first of, of january but also leave the economic institutions the single market and the eu's customs union deal or no deal uh, that trading relationship will be very different and the implications in a lot of other areas as well. So the government is trying to do that during a pandemic. Some people thought that the pandemic would be a pretext to use that right we had back in June to extend, but the government was determined to deliver Brexit this year so it could move on to the rest of its agenda. So what we're going to be looking at today is what does this mean? What will confront government, business, the rest of us when the government tries to move us simultaneously into our new future while still managing the pandemic, the new whammy, if you like. Uh, how to manage that? Well, that's what we're going to be discussing today. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government, and I'm joined by a top panel of people who are going to use the next hour or so to shed some light on these issues. First up, is Dame Claire Moriarty. Uh, Claire spent last year, twenty nineteen, marching government up the hill of no deal preparations a number of times and marching back down again. Uh, she is steeped in what it takes to get ready for Brexit, in her roles as Permanent Secretary at the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, one of the most affected departments by Brexit, and then at the Department for Exiting the EU. Uh, Claire is no longer a civil servant, but has a long career. She's also worked in transport as the director general of rail. And I first knew Claire when she was at the Department of Health, uh, where she's, uh, which is also a big actor in all of this, of course. Then delighted to be joined by Tom Redden. Tom is chief executive of Leeds City Council. Currently, I think in tier three. Looks suspiciously at Tom. Yes, in tier three. Um, but Tom is notable for having been seconded in to help with test and trace during the summer to try and get, uh, working well. So I'm going to be asking Tom about what this looks like from local level and the logistics side that the government is going to be confronting. Then my colleague, Jeff, Professor Jonathan Portes from King's College London, Professor of Economics and Public Policy, associated with UK and a changing Europe. Jonathan is an economist and Jonathan has written extensively on the economics of both COVID and Brexit, but also might bring to bear some of his experience in helping the government through its reaction to the last big economic shock, that sort of minor little incident of 2008 called the global financial crisis, where Jonathan was chief economist at the cabinet office. And last but absolutely not least, uh, my colleague from the Institute for Government, Alex Thomas, Alex's program director for civil service issues at IFG has already done some work writing about what uh, the government's uh, COVID decision-making looks like, what went well, what could have been approved. But before joining IFG last year, uh, was in charge of no deal planning at DEFRA and before that, in charge of animal health and welfare there. So that's a pretty top lineup, I think you'll agree. So let's get stuck in. I'm gonna start with Brexit and go to you, Claire. This should all be pretty easy, actually, shouldn't it? Brexit preparations, at least inside government, because after all, we kept on preparing for no deal last year. The government's had, even if it's been sort of slightly hit for six by COVID, it's had an extra year compared to some of the uh, timetables you were looking at last year. So should we assume government's pretty much ready to handle whatever Brexit throws at us uh,
1: early in the new year? Um, so I think it's I think it's kind of worth looking for a moment at the at the journey that preparations for exit have been on. So there was a big quarter of 2019 against the prospect of a no deal exit on the 29th of March 2019. Um, that felt uh, very much as if we were kind of picking up things at quite a late stage and uh, and trying to work out what to do. There was a much more concentrated and organised effort uh, in the run-up to the 31st of October. Uh, The whole process treated much more like, you know, the the biggest um, uh, kind of portfolio management exercise you could possibly imagine. Um, Lots and lots of preparation done within government and by government with uh, wider communities. Um, And I think... Uh, as we then left uh you know we left the eu on the 31st of october of, of sorry of january 2020 um uh, heading towards uh the end of the transition period at the end of uh this year there was an under- that lots of the preparation that had been done uh, would still be applicable, because it was clear that things were going to change. The sort of deal that the government was seeking was going to involve quite a lot of change to everyday practices, and a lot of the systems that government had developed would be needed in any case. And at that point... You know at the beginning of the very beginning of this year, it looked as though there was at least a reasonable amount of time to you know to test, to embed, to solidify, to be ready and to work with particularly you know on business uh, and trader readiness. But obviously, what's happened is that the um the pandemic has kind of knocked all of that for six, and so the the the, the effort that everybody was expecting to make, Um, Has been, uh, you know, has been inevitably uh, not as great as it uh, as it could be, and I think that is, but more particularly on the uh, on the business and trader and and individual citizen readiness side than probably government itself, where an awful lot of stuff had been done and banked. I think, the but the other thing was, it was always going to be a question. There's lots and lots that you can do ahead of time. You can plan for it. You can test and have things ready. But there are always going to be things when you actually leave that are that don't turn out the way you expect. So it's a, it was a kind of almighty program, but it was always going to have a very uncertain element uh, at the end of the process when we actually left and found some things that we had not been able to spot in advance. And those are obviously still there and they can't, some of them, be known until we actually get to the point of leaving. So I think there's a there is a kind of general preparedness question where. Government, I think, from what I saw before I left government, was in a reasonably good place, but has inevitably people have been have been very uh, kind of pulled in different ways and distracted. I think the the extent to which uh, the traders are ready is, I think, much more questionable because the bandwidth has just hasn't been there. And the capacity in the system to respond to what will inevitably be a set of unknowns uh, on the 1st of January is less than it would have been uh, in any other circumstances.
0: So you rightly say that actually the things that are going to surprise are the unknowns. But uh, do you have any sort of sense from your preparations last year of where you might be particularly concerned that some of those sort of unexpected eventualities might Crystallise. Are there any sort of areas where you're quite worried that actually there is scope for something happening that you hadn't expected?
1: Well, I think the obvious, uh, I mean, there's some obvious issues just the the kind of anything that involves, uh, you know, logistics and people physically moving around. So the border uh, was always one of the main areas of focus. Uh, And you can do lots and lots of preparation in advance, but until you actually get to a world in which people are travelling, are needing to have um, papers checked, are needing to go through processes and in some cases have been through processes before they left, uh, which they may or may not have understood enough to go through. So I think there is the border is a major area for for unknowns. Um, And clearly, I mean, the very, very big issue is around Northern Ireland, uh, where on the one hand, the agreement that was reached in October last year was much more specific in relation to Northern Ireland than it was in relation to other things. So it did it did kind of nail down a set of uh, propositions in relation to Northern Ireland. But even those have got very big uh, question marks attached to them. So there was a lot of things that were remitted to the Joint Committee um, to resolve, and those you know, where those questions and, and those negotiations are still continuing. And so there was a huge. Uh, question about what what actually happens uh, in practice on the ground in uh, in Northern Ireland so so, I mean the border and Northern Ireland were always in a sense the biggest issues in terms of of uh, places where unknowns could arise but I mean one of the things we know is that the the whole point about unknowns is that they can come out of places that you don't uh, expect one of the one of the very kind of interesting cautionary tales was in, 20, in the summer of 2018 two manufacturers of carbon dioxide happened to go into planned maintenance at the same point um, and just the effect of that you know two planned decisions uh, had a massive effect on the carbon dioxide uh, it manifested first in kind of slightly lighthearted stories about what it was going to do for pins at Wimbledon but very quickly became a serious issue because you need carbon dioxide for meat processing, if you can't process meat, then you can't. You know, you can't. Uh, you, know, you 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 end up building up, uh, you know, stock on farms that can't be processed. It turns out, you know, carbon dioxide is important for water, all sorts of things. So one small, it is a classic, a classic example of the of the kind of butterfly flapping its wings. That one small thing in a, an area that nobody was particularly expecting to have an impact. Uh, produces a big ripple effect, and I think the thing about the unknowns is that every single unknown that has been seen has been kind of trapped and diligently put into a you know a, a planning system, and somebody has found a solution, and things have been worked through. Um, but I used to say there will be another dozen that we haven't seen, and we won't be able to see until they actually come and uh, you know and pop up in real life.
0: And um, one last question to you before I'm going to move on to the COVID side with Tom: um, Does Basically, if we get through the first couple of weeks of January, can we? Um, whether that can we then basically say that's okay? That was when we expected difficulties. Now we're reverting to normal. Or do are there things that will pop up that won't you know emerge early, but where the government will have to be you know on watch for weeks, months, maybe that issues may emerge that it didn't anticipate. I don't know quite
1: what your planning horizons were when you were looking at this last year index, you um i think there will i mean there will it will certainly be quite a long term question uh i mean there, 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 because there will be some issues as you say which will be very immediate so the question that people have always been thinking about is what happens you know on day one at the border uh you know when people turn up and despite all of the best efforts of everyone involved there will be people who turn up without the right paperwork and who therefore won't be able to be processed and and you, and there's a, I mean, i'm sure the planning has moved on hugely over the last 10 months but just the logistics of how you turn a lorry round uh, and send it back out again so there will be a, an immediate set of issues um and those you know probably uh those can be resolved relatively quickly there will be other things i'm sure which will be slower burn i mean at the moment in a part partly to do with covid um because at the moment people are travelling very little so one of the things that used to exercise us in uh, in Defra was pet passports um you know one in 10 of all cars uh travelling through uh, the channel tunnel uh in the you know certainly in 2017 or 2018 they you know, had a pet um with them so that's a very large number of people having to change uh what they're doing so we might have expected over a christmas holiday lots of people going away to stay with friends and family that there would be lots and lots of kind of people and pets coming through back through that isn't going to happen um i think because of covid but there will be be some issues like that that don't have to turn up until later and there will be some issues to do perhaps with um, you know supply where uh, it takes you know people start off with um, you know their normal supply in, in warehouses that gets drawn down and so you might get hit with a problem in say six weeks time when the supply chain becomes more fragile um, having been having actually sailed perfectly happily through the first couple of weeks
0: okay. Alex, I'm not sure whether you have anything you want to add to Claire's list there. Well,
2: only, I mean, Claire brought back memories there of uh, <laughs> carbon dioxide shortages and pet passports and all that, so that was, uh, uh sort of, um, uh, part happy, part traumatic. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, I think just to... to Pick up on the, the where where Claire started really in terms of the in uh, you know, the capacity in the uh, system and the preparedness uh, falls. You can cut it lots of different ways, but I always I think of it as sort of three types of things. The first is the the systems that people have been working on to whether it's in HMRC to process customs uh, you know, customs declarations or uh, in DEFRA uh, on animal movements or uh, animal product movements or whatever. But the systems were you know, my my sense was pretty fragile. In uh, early 2019, as Claire said, they would hopefully just about have held together, but we were all a bit nervous. Um, uh, and, and those are the things that uh, where there has been a real benefit to having a longer period to test, to prepare, to make sure those systems are more resilient. So, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the capacity in the system there, there's, there's um, you know, I'd be more confident on, on those. So there may still be issues. And the second kind of bucket of things, as Claire was saying, is the, the contingency response. Uh, And the uh, classic sort of government um, uh, civil contingencies planning, lots of work went into reasonable worst case scenarios uh, identifying that. Um By definition, when you get into a civil contingency uh, 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 event, something has gone wrong, but uh, I would, I would back the government to be, uh, you know, as, as on the front foot as you can be, uh, in terms of, uh, responding to those, that type that, that type of sort of crisis event. Uh, and then the third thing, as, as, as Claire was saying, not, not to get too, uh, Rumsfeldian, but the unknown, uh, unknowns or the known unknowns and, um, uh, unexpected events popping out, particularly, uh, picking up Northern Ireland or, uh, uh th- th- there was a bit of a sense towards the end of last year that um uh, government was putting a lot of effort into trying to identify these things but uh, quite a uh, some of it was sort of distraction activity almost so you know look, we fi- we found a problem and so let's try and come up with a Spoke solution for this particular problem, um, uh, but uh, never, never quite sure whether you know that was actually the the, the area that we really should be focusing on prioritising particularly particular goods uh, in queues in Kent or, um, or, or 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 whatever. So um, so there's a bit of a sense of sort of um, uh, government finding thing, finding problems to solve, which are all kind of good sensible problems to solve, but not really knowing what the totality of this thing is going to look like. And I think that that still uh, that still remains the case.
0: Okay, well I don't think your reasonable worst case scenario had managing Brexit during a global pandemic that we hadn't seen for a century, which is of course the, what we're now confronting. So I want to move on to Tom. Tom, you've been uh, involved in managing COVID day to day as Chief Executive in Leeds, but also working with Test and Trace. We've now, uh, we're recording this on the day we move back to regional tiers in england then we have christmas with the potential loosening potential travel so i just wondered looking at all that what's what's sort of on your watch list for the new year sitting uh sitting in leeds uh, city council what are you worried about on the covid management front
3: i'm worried about lots of things um but the thing i'm probably most worried about is my uh, my staff because you've had a uh, um, a group of people who have been working flat out for for uh, most of the year um at the front line of dealing with a unique global pandemic none of us that have experienced before having to completely change the way that we deliver certain public services um and doing so after a decade of austerity um where you know the uh, the, the there's been a significant reduction in the numbers of people that you know local the local state employees, um so it's it's incredibly it's been incredibly challenging um and we are you know we're increasingly relying on a group of people who who have been as i say massively challenged and uh and continue to be so i think the keeping my my staff going is probably my main concern um and and creating the conditions for that um the um you know, the, the, the response, I think, to, to COVID locally has been absolutely brilliant by um, by local government generally. I think it's a bit, it's always a bit of an untold story, the local bit of what happens. But, you know, keeping public services going, um, keeping the NHS going, you know, the NHS has been fantastic as well, um, you know, t- has taken a, a, a big effort. And I think that will be the sort of heart of what we try and do in the new year. Um, obviously when we started out with the pandemic, we just had, we didn't have that many tools at our disposal. We now have, um, test and trace. It's, it's much more effective the more local it is. That was the bit that I helped create in government with government. And, um, you know, if you get a local voice on the phone and a visit from a count, the council or a charity, you're probably more likely to, to want to, uh, cooperate if you know what support's available than getting a, a call from, you know, a number you don't know from somebody you don't recognise telling you to do something and then six other calls, you know, in the next 24 hours. So I I think that local system is now building up and gearing up. We've got to get that right. We have um, the vaccine announced today, which is amazing news. And again, you know, one of my biggest, you know, logistical challenges of the new year will be getting the vaccine out to as many people as possible who need it most as soon as possible. So that's the... You know, the big priority for us in local government and the NHS, you know, in January and February, certainly. And even now, Um the big the big additional factors in, you know, in the new year are we are going to get a, 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 another increase in infections because of uh because of the uh, Christmas relaxation. We know that. So that's going to happen. The question is, how big is that going to be? Um, and how much will we have to raise the restriction levels again or not to deal with that we have the skills coming back the students coming back in a city like Leeds which has been the main source of you know the biggest spike for for the for certainly the biggest cities outside London um, and so the other bit of in our armoury is the is the testing element and the so-called mass testing and making sure that that you know works effectively even if it's not you know, as perfect as the PCR test, the lateral flow tests are, are going to be quite important with the student population as well. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's concurrency is an issue, is a word that I hadn't heard much, um, before, um, now and the last few months concurrency is for those of you who don't, you know, haven't heard that before is when, you know, you have all the, you're, you're an emergency planner and you're doing these, war gaming of certain things happening i've been in one myself and i remember them you know the, the the train station had to shut down then we got a terrorist attack then we got a massive snowfall and <laughs> you you left there thinking well that won't happen in real in real life and it's almost like someone's been watching us this year seeing what else we can uh, deal with um i'm just waiting for the four horsemen of the apocalypse to ride down there the heroin leads at some point, but um, no, it's it's a challenge, and it continues to be a challenge. And I would say there's a there's a big big mental health challenge in all of this as well. There's lots of people who have been affected a lot, who've lost loved ones, who haven't been able to see their friends and family, who miss the social interaction, who are quite phased by you know the the the, the restrictions. Um, you know, I think all of that is going to play through in the new year as well. And we, uh, we need to be alive to it and being, we need to be kind to each other, um, is the, is the biggest thing I say to my, my staff. So yeah, lots to, lots to deal with. But, you know, we, we, we're getting on with it in a very British way. And, uh, and we, you know, like Claire and her ex-colleagues, you know, we all get on with it and we'll make it work, I guess.
0: And Tom, have you had to sort of divert resources that you might have otherwise, been spending in Leeds about supporting businesses with the Brexit transition or getting out public information uh, i know some local councils set up brexit task forces to look at what that might mean uh, but i'm not sure they've had the bandwidth to do that this year um has it has it actually affected that degree of preparation or was that never really going to matter cuz you're not in kent you're not in northern ireland you aren't a big board you've got an airport but
3: uh yeah no we, we uh we've kept a, we've had a brexit task force and we uh i've held uh monthly meetings with all the business rep organizations in not just leeds but the region um we have the settlement scheme and you know tens of thousands of people to make sure that they get through that who mm. you know often um you know it, it it takes a lot with uh we you know people speak uh over 90 languages in leeds um, there's there's lots of um challenges with the impact on individuals and on businesses, um we are significantly affected um in you know in certain sectors potentially. Um, you know, we have Asta uh, based in Leeds, for example, um and we've been talking to them about, you know, the, the you know, how all this is gonna work. The um I, I don't think it's necessarily diverted as I think to be honest, everybody it's almost Brexit has been sort of relegated in the priority list because it's had to be for most people. Um, and it's now coming back onto the radar in December and everybody's hoping against hope that we'll get a deal that will make the transition as smooth as possible. But for those, I'm on, I've been on a national group advising and listening to government, um, you know, for the last two years on Brexit. You know, I think Kent is going to be the, biggest challenge um i think some sectors are readier than others as well having talked to the food retailers and and others i think i think that side of government and that side of uh you know in some ways they they've said to me that the pandemic has been a dry run for brexit because they've had to get their supply chains sorted and open and they've had rushes on food at times and toilet rolls and things and so um i think that side of things I hear is people are more confident. It's the, it's the smaller businesses who are who are all those things that I've described about my staff. They're tired. They, they haven't got time to do the Brexit stuff. They, you know, they'll, they'll cross that bridge when they come to it in some ways.
0: Okay. Then you go on to Jonathan now. You were mentioning that uh, some of your bigger businesses are ready, but that people were hoping – for a deal, Jonathan. Some people have suggested, I think, um, named David Davis, for instance, um, former Brexit secretary, that actually COVID makes managing the economic fallout of the pandemic easier. There's not that much sort of going on cross border. Claire pointed to the fact that people aren't sitting in the Euro Tunnel with fluffy in the same way as we might have expected in a normal year. Do you think that's right? That uh, that actually the coincidence of the, both of those makes actually it easier to manage the economic fallout of Brexit, or uh, is it more like a perfect
4: storm for business? Um, well, I think you can put you can argue this both ways. It clearly is the case that, uh, to the extent that the pandemic has hit, in particular, trade, travel, tourism, immigration, uh, that both uh, means that. Uh, there is going to be less congestion less uh, less risk that that things simply won 't happen because too many people are trying to do the same thing at once um, and moreover um, min to the extent that things are reduced minimizes the economic damage um for example uh we're introducing an entirely new immigration system on january the first that would um have almost certainly have more negative consequences if lots of people were trying to migrate between the UK and the EU in order to take up jobs. Disrupting that would have done some economic damage. At, in current circumstances, it'll probably do, even if it goes somewhat wrong at first, it'll probably do very little economic damage. So I think David Davis has a perfectly reasonable point here. Um, on the other hand, there are also the uh, uh, the aspects that uh, uh, we've just heard, which is that people... Um, you know, people are, and businesses and government are all strained in all sorts of ways, from the physical and mental on the one hand, to the sort of financial on the other. Uh, um, you know, and and perhaps most of all, the people and businesses just don't simply have simply don't have the bandwidth to cope with additional disruptions imposed by governments because of Brexit, on top of the ones that have already been imposed because of the pandemic. Uh, I think and this is more speculative there are also risks that uh I mean you given that I'm now actually rather optimistic on our the economic prospects for recovery both here and elsewhere uh, uh as vaccines are rolled out I think actually uh, that that we'll see quite strong recoveries in demand both in the UK and in Europe uh that in some ways we miss out on the potential upsides of that to some extent as supply chains are rebuilt, um, as businesses expand again, that Brexit in some sectors at least will act as a constraint on that and hence what could otherwise have been a very strong recovery isn't quite as strong as it otherwise would be.
0: So we've heard that the government has a sectoral dashboard, I think the Times was reporting this yesterday, of the sectors that are most impacted and at risk because of COVID. The government's been notably reluctant to do very much on the economics of Brexit and its backbenchers don't seem nearly as interested in that as they are in the economic impacts of COVID. I wonder if you could just give us a picture of the sort of, you know, sectoral impacts of COVID plus Brexit. Do they basically hit the same sectors or do they hit sectors very differentially?
4: Um, I think it, it's very hard to tell, but the consensus so far appears to be uh, that it's, uh, the, the correlation is negative on the whole. That on the whole, the sectors that are most hit by COVID, um, which are um, the ones that, re- you know, mostly services that rely on face-to-face interaction are likely to be distinct from the sectors that are most hit from Brexit, which are the sectors that rely on international trade, um, and whether in, in, uh, um, in goods, agriculture or high tech, services, um, and, uh, and on supply chains rather than, uh, face-to-face interaction. Uh, so, uh, um, and that, you know, um, car manufacturing, um, less hit perhaps by, uh, restaurants perhaps less hit by Brexit. Now, there may be exceptions. You can, uh, 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 for example, um, visitor attractions which rely on tourism um, may well be uh, may well be hit by both um, but on the whole it seems that the uh, the, the correlation is negative um, but I think the other thing that's really important to remember is the time dimension um, that COVID is overwhelmingly a short-term phenomenon um, and I think now that uh, a vaccine looks likely that is even more the case I do not think personally uh, that the economic impacts of COVID will be very noticeable in two to three years, actually. Um, whereas the assuming, uh, and let's just assume for the moment that thanks to the good work of, of everybody on this call and everybody in government and so on, that there is no catastrophic short-term disruption over Brexit. In other words, that Claire and Co have mitigated all the known unknowns and that the unknown unknowns, whatever they turn out to be, um, are not uh, uh, are, are not absolutely catastrophic, um, and I think that is the central scenario. There'll be some disruption, but we'll get over it. Um, the impacts of Brexit are medium and long term. Uh, they will reduce trade intensity in particular sectors, typically high productivity sectors, and that will depress productivity and wages in the UK over the medium to long term. Um, and that those effects build up over time um and so we won't see very much of them in the first year or two but over time uh they'll make us somewhat poorer than we otherwise would have been whereas covid i don't think will so i think looking at the time dimension is is very important here as well
0: and does deal or no deal make that much difference um, as of wednesday morning we still don't know whether it's deal or no deal she says you have to time stamp these comments now uh, nowadays
4: um, uh, i think uh, you know, deal or no deal. As we all know, most of the legal, you know, legal and formal new restrictions on trade um, that will come into place with Brexit happen, deal or no deal. Customs declarations, customs checks, health checks at borders, um, and indeed the new immigration system. All of those are deal independent, as 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 it were. Um, I think there are two. Um, Big ways in which Deal or No Deal at least indirectly matters a lot. First of all, that No Deal makes it much less likely that the European Committee, uh, the, the EU, will um, act in a way uh, that, that's uh, you know uh, helpful on things which are not directly linked to the deal, but actually um, in practice really are and matter a lot. Like equivalency decisions on data and financial services, technically not to do with deal or no deal, but everybody knows that, of course, they are in practice linked, um, and and those could be um, significantly more damaging and disruptive than actually the the formal implications of the deal or no deal. Um, and then I guess the second, uh, more speculative, is is what are the medium term implications of of our relationship with the EU post-Brexit, starting off on the sort of euphoria of er- everyone having to say, oh, this is a great, even though it's not a great deal, <laughs> as, um, everyone having to pop the champagne and say, look, this is wonderful, a new era of UK-EU uh, uh, cooperation, this is a great deal, um, which may not be true, but at least provides a constructive platform on which to build on, as opposed to uh, the opposite, which is a no deal um, where we will immediately um, have... Anything you know, problems with Northern Ireland, problem quite possibly confrontations at least verbal and quite possibly more over fish in the channel um, and that sort of thing, which may not be that, frankly, macroeconomically insignificant, but in terms of setting the political tone for the future economic relationship, clearly very damaging indeed.
0: That's very interesting. Now, Alex, Tom was telling us about the sort of exhaustion of the his staff in uh, in Leeds City Council. Obviously, government is much bigger. Quite a lot of people who will be working on neither COVID nor nor Brexit. Do you think there would be a similar phenomenon of exhaustion uh, in Whitehall, um, or would that be? There are loads and loads of people to redeploy onto all of this and have a lot of mutual support between departments and actually there's loads of capacity there to manage both problems simultaneously.
2: So yes, I absolutely think there'll be the same, uh, the same phenomenon happening. I'm sure Claire will want to come in on this as well in a, in, in, in a moment, but I was very struck that Tom kicked off talking about the, uh, uh, uh exhaustion and uh, the, the toll that it's taken on his his team. I think, you know, m- my experience in, in in Whitehall is you've got quite a lot of people who uh, are crisis junkies and get energised by this sort of stuff uh, and are very good at um, responding to, uh, to to unexpected events. Um, but you've also got quite a lot of people who, um, uh, you know, would would prefer things to be a bit more ordered and uh, who get ground down by it. But the main point on that is. Whitehall's spent you know Whitehall and central government have uh, uh, spent the last 4 years in one sort of not necessarily crisis but kind of one sort of extraordinary situation or another so there is absolutely a a, a toll at that um, takes i think the, the the main thing that's important it's important to talk about the well being of staff it's important to talk to 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 reassure people that there are you know, places they can go to but the really important thing is that ministers in particular but also uh, uh, the civil service um, are as ruthless as they can be about prioritizing what 's really important uh, and being clear what's less important so everybody knows what um, what what uh, each department what the government uh, values and, and and is focusing on and so a clear sense of what the priorities are and there might be loads and loads of uh uh, different aspects to that but um but having a clear sense of direction ministers setting out a a a really clear um uh uh, their version of that and uh letting people drop stuff that's that's less important is uh is 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 very significant the 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 contrasting the covid and and, and brexit crises uh uh, for a moment or or events Mm -hmm. um it was on no deal Brexit. It was uh, very uh, striking that there were sort of demand and supply departments, if you like. So there were departments that were less affected by um, by uh, Brexit, um, the Department of Health, the, um, the Department for Education, um, uh, and they could supply uh, staff to those departments that needed more resource and there was actually in, in whitehall terms it wasn't perfect but there was a pretty uh good uh, sort of mutual arrangement where people could could move around particularly in the in the no deal planning um that's going to be a bit harder with um, covid because the effects are so much more uh,
4: widespread
0: claire do you have you got anything to add you've uh, i know staff welfare was one of your top concerns supporting people through this if you what would your advice be to your uh... Uh, fellow permanent secretaries on how they might support staff to get through this?
1: So, I mean, I would certainly, I mean, and exactly as Tom said, I would be very, very uh, concerned at this point about the, the stress that people have been under for such a long period. Um, as Alex says, there was for Brexit, um, there, was a, there, was a, you know, there was a massive uh, exercise to move people around between departments. It actually it was one of those things where having a, having a crisis actually accelerates the development of new systems. And so for the first time, um, uh, what came into being was a system that allowed people to be moved between departments to, to match where the need was. Um, but that, in a sense, just demonstrates that you needed all the people who were available to do the proper preparations for for deal of Brexit. Actually, just I mean, you know, whatever whatever the exit route is, and um, whether there is a, a, a deal now agreed, there is just a huge amount of work involved in being ready for the things that might come up. Covid has clearly been a really massive strain on departments as well. I mean, talking to you know, talking to former colleagues. Um, because it's more of a crisis and less of a programme. Um, you know, huge numbers of people who were working, uh, you know, seven days a week, uh, shifts, you know, people who didn't have a day off for several months because there was so much to do. Um, and I think just the, the accumulated exhaustion uh, that's existing in the system and I think it was a, a, it was very interesting I, I agree with Jonathan that in terms of the business impact there has been you know the the, the the most affected businesses by Brexit are not necessarily the most affected by COVID but actually in terms of departments there are some departments that are just getting the cosh on everything so you know HMRC, Bayes, Treasury actually I mean places like DEFRA where there is a there is a kind of big COVID issue around uh, food supply and so on but there's also um, a oh no there's all of the there's all, all the kind of the brexit things so I think uh, so so if i was if I was still sitting in a department, I would be just trying uh, as alex says to to you know, work with the ministerial team to do the best possible prioritisation that we could do. And then constantly trying to understand where the people who were under the greatest amount of pressure try to work out how we could, you know, relieve pressure at the margin. Put kind of, you know, almost personal resilience plans around the people who were most being being pulled in most directions at once, and think creatively about how other people could uh, step in and uh, and help to carry the load. So I think there was a period early in the in the COVID crisis when there were some people who were massively overworked and some people who actually found themselves with very little to do because so much couldn't continue. And, and, you know, so I would be trying to to make sure that as far as possible, uh, I was evening things out, but then endlessly encouraging people to talk about their welfare, to do, you know, use all the tools that were developed um, and then to be ready to put their hands up and say, you know, I'm about to fall over. Uh, So that that they can be helped before they fall over rather than waiting for it uh, to happen to people.
0: Tom, you wanted to come in on that. I'm sort of quite interested to add to that whether working in a COVID secure way has made everything just that bit harder uh, to organise than it might have been in normal circumstances.
3: Um, Yeah, I, I I think we've all done remarkably well, actually, to to adapt. And you know, I, I we've got eight thousand people working from home, and had that sorted within ten days. I think I would have been really concerned if I'd had a long run up to that, thinking it could actually happen. Um, so I think we've probably done better. I I think the um, what I I just wanted to say that I, I I think although I was talking to a few CEOs in our city about this last week and. I think Jonathan's point about um, what the long term effects of all this are going to be are are right in one respect, but I would I would give a, a different view in another. So the the big question in the north at the moment is that are we is this the 80s again? You know, mm-hmm. we're going to have these massive job losses and we're going to have people who, um, you know, that we're really, really concerned about our economies. Um, and it's not just the north, you know. I, I think I think London has been challenged by this pandemic as as never before. The Lon- London <laughs> is built on a footfall economy, um, and um, and if you can't have that footfall, then there's a he- heck of a lot of London's economy that's going to have to adapt and change. So, I, although I don't think it's like the '80s in terms of the restructuring of of big sectors that are going to completely change. Um, because the vaccine will come through, and things will mm. adapt, I think there are some more societal and people implications that are massive in terms of the um, you know the a generation of young people who are going to be out of a job who weren 't able to do their exams who um, who who are who could be quite significantly you know psychologically affected by this if we don 't put that right. Um, and it will take time for the economy to recover and to, for those jobs to come back um there's a there's a massive issue i think uh, you know i i believe whitehall and parts of whitehall are, are very good at planning um they're not as good at doing they they, they rely on others to do mm. a lot of the time and um and we found that with whether it's ppe or whether it's test and trace mm. or whatever um Things actually get done by others at a local level, whether it's shop workers keeping the supermarkets going, or it's people collecting your bins, or it's the mm-hmm. NHS um, and social care running. Um, I, I think there's a there's a strain on the, this has again shown the strain on the way the current system mm-hmm. in a way that's got to change. We, we can't. People will not want to work. Um, Travel the same de- time of every day and travel home the same day every time and um, go to the same office in, this, in the way they used to. All the big businesses are already planning for much less office space. That's a fundamental impact on many city centres. There's a big um, impact, you know, yeah. that, that plays into the carbon agenda with all this that could be a positive. Um, yeah. so there are, I think there are other things at play here and, and the the, the the issue of the that you see playing out in Scotland of people feeling quite distant from the the London based government mm. is is something that's felt in the regions as well. And we have very, very little power over shaping our own destiny, but we're expected to um to do all these different things layered on top of each other and something's I think something's got to change about the national local balance of power in the next few years in England um let alone you know the rest of the uk so i think there are big big issues coming and um, that this pandemic has shown that are going to be with us for a long time
0: i want to i want to come on at the end to some of these very big issues about the rest of the government's agenda which of course is an agenda about leveling up and particularly focused on the north but jonathan tom's raised some of those issues about the changes to the economic structures we've seen massive amounts of economic support coming in to see businesses through COVID, uh, should the government be thinking about doing similar stuff for Brexit or does that not work as basically it's long-term changes you, you're coming in? You know, What's the economic policy challenge the government confronts next year?
4: Um, I think it's difficult to see the analogy with Brexit. To the extent these are long-term structural shifts, the economy is going to have to adapt. Um, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy with what Tom was saying about the failures in governance um, that and uh, state capacity that this pandemic has revealed and the challenges that that throws up. But on the economy, um, I really would be quite a lot more optimistic. Um, you know, I, I really do not see why. Um, and you know, I, I, I said this at the beginning of the pandemic that that in principle there. With the right policies, we ought to be able to have a V-shaped recovery, and I still think it may be a W-shaped. That 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 should still be the case after a vaccine. um, We will not be um, less. We will not have lost any significant part of our workforce, our capital, um, our creativity, our intellectual abilities, all of that. uh, there really is absolutely no reason that I can see why we should not, to use a, the terrible cliche, build back better. Um, to the extent that the pandemic has revealed that actually uh, there are some things we not have to be forced to change, but we would like to change. We would like to work from home, even if working in the offices doesn't involve risking getting sick. Um, well, those that's a good thing. Um, that is positive. It should be positive for productivity and it should be positive for our welfare as human beings. Um, and the role of government is to support that. Um, but there's no reason why that should have a negative effect on our economy or welfare at all. Um, and I think, you know, actually a lot of the um, economic uh, scenarios that have been thrown around look very pessimistic to me. Uh, certainly when the chancellor said that our economic emergency has just begun, this really is absolute nonsense, right? I mean, we had an economic emergency in April when GDP fell by 25%. It's recovered a lot. It will go down a bit again in December, but then it will come back under any plausible scenario. And I think e- the, even under the OBR scenario, which looks to me quite pessimistic, we'll be back where we were in, in 18 months. I think it could be a lot sooner than that. Um, so there's no sense in where we're now any longer in, in an economic emergency, uh, the question is, how do we, what does Build Back Better actually mean? And to, to me, you know, there are a lot of challenges there, as Thomas said, around governance, um, around, in particular, um, uh, decarbonisation. And I think, you know, that the, if the government, as it now appears to be, is genuinely serious about a net zero target, that requires a degree of um, long-term policy commitment and state capacity, um, which is really, really going to be very challenging, very exciting, but also very challenging for the UK. Um But that, in some senses, is far, far more important um than COVID um and probably more important in some ways than Brexit.
0: So, Jonathan, these sort of young people that Tom was worried about, people who've had a miserable time with their schools, come into a labour market where there are no jobs or have a totally terrible first year at university, turning up and being locked up basically we just sort of tell them it's going to be it's going to be okay you know you're not going to suffer from spending your first year when you thought you might be working unemployed because you might have had a job in retail or the hospitality sector or anything like that just you know should
4: we worry about that sort of scarring we, effect? we, should, we should worry about it and throw a lot of money at it i mean uh, if if you know if unemployment is significantly higher you know assuming that all conditional on, on you know, the rollout going reasonably successful. But if unemployment is significantly higher than normal a year from now, that's because policy is wrong. It's not because it's not COVID's fault, right? That is because we have got economic policy in the aftermath of the recovery uh, um, wrong. Um, so the answer is we throw as much money as it takes at job training programs, at job creation programs, at all the things that we know that we didn't do uh right in the nineteen eighties. Um this is a policy, an economic and social policy set of problems. It is no longer um, a health-related set of problems, and we we have the tools, we have the uh the fiscal capacity to deal with these things. Um we simply have to get on and do it. There is no excuse for not putting in the money necessary and the resources necessary to let kids catch up at school Um, to let uh, to ensure that there are jobs for young people Um, we just need to and again this comes back to to to, to escape capacity but these are things we really ought to be able to do if we put our minds to it there are no obvious obstacles to doing them
1: so policy not pandemic uh claire um thank you and i I just really wanted to underline the point which I, i don't think is disagreeing with jonathan at all that i mean you know This can't just be about GDP, um, you know, and it can't just be about numbers of jobs. We've got to think about the quality of jobs as well. We know that, you know, as a as a country we went into the pandemic with greater structural inequalities than many countries and that has shaped the experience that we have had both in terms of lives lost and in terms of the economic impact and we also know that the 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 effect of the pandemic is widening inequalities everything about the pandemic has fallen unevenly across society there are some groups have been much more disadvantaged and if we allow that then to be the basis from which we then you know have a kind of conventional recovery, we are just going to be an ever more unequal and ever less resilient um, society. So we've absolutely got to, I know, it, 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 it may be a V-shaped recovery, but we're going to have to work incredibly hard to make it a kind of inclusively V-shaped recovery.
4: I've heard the phrase uh, K-shaped recovery, which is a very good one, which is a recovery where people are already doing quite well, like, frankly, all of us. Um, actually do fine um, whereas people who are already struggling do worse and I think that is a real real risk but again this is not you know it is not the vaccine which uh, sorry it is not the virus which does that it's policy which or lack of policy which does that.
0: Okay well Jonathan's optimism is based on managing to get that vaccine out to people. Tom has already raised some question marks I think probably quite fair question marks about it's fine enough to have the vaccine on order, but can government defined widely actually manage to organize a mass vaccination? Tom, I wondered if you might based on your experience and test and trace and, you know, just sort of share with us what you think the scale of that logistical task is. I don't know whether local government's being very involved in Department of Health and social for this.
3: Yeah, we've, um, we've been, we've been. <laughs> we've been put, putting our all in um yeah we, we've been, we've been um getting in there so we i'm on a group that's uh, been set up to to make sure we're making that link i i mean this is the the biggest vaccine deployment this country will have ever done at this scale on this pace um i think the um the 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 the, the cohorts that we're talking about getting to first are the most frail and um and vulnerable in some ways um in terms of uh people like you know dementia wards in care homes for example um the uh the the delivering things through the command and control approach that the nhs um does pretty well at times to do certain things um does not lend itself to the more um, fragmented and atomized nature of, um, for example, the care, the social care system or the domiciliary, domiciliary care system. So they are big initial challenges and the vaccines themselves and the nature of those and the way that you can deploy them and store them um, will have an impact on how quickly you can reach those different cohorts. We have communities who are very, very uh, sceptical about vaccines very, very worried about certain um, products, um, traces of products in them um, that we're going to have to deal with. And we have a very, very live and well-organised anti-vaccine movement, very minority but very mm-hmm. vocal and very effective. So all of those things mean that we have a massive challenge. However, I think the early signs are that um, that we have two good um, core vaccines coming through. One, the Pfizer one, which is um you know very very high efficacy but difficult to transport outside major centers so you will have that as the vaccine for you know deployment to the NHS staff and you know major cohorts who can who can access city centers and town centers basically and then you'll have the Oxford vaccine which is more which is not high as high efficacy but um, much easier to deploy and distribute on a on a very community basis through the traditional networks of GPS and pharmacies um, so both of those things will be at work and you 'll probably have a middle layer as well, which is the sort of bigger centers in some of the population um, you know higher population centers across the country um, i I think that we i, I the, the worry, I, I think we've got all the things in place to be able to do this, but the worry I've got is that I don't think people have fully realised the logistical challenge of the fact you've got to go twice. If you just think about you and your own um, family and friends, how good are we all at remembering when an appointment is, changing our diaries to get there, and then remembering to do so in 28 days' time after that in the same way? We, we're not great at that, and so... Think about the whole population having to do that. It's a massive, massive effort, and I don't. If anything, I don't think we've fully prioritised it, sort of psychologically, in the um, in in the government government and public system. I think this has got to be. This is our way out, and we've got to almost deprioritise everything else to get this done in the first quarter of next year so that we can get back to living our normal lives and running the economy and getting the, you know, the increases that Jonathan was talking about. So, yeah, I think that the building blocks are there, but I think it's going to be a bumpier ride, as always, because at the end of the day, this, what I'd say again, our national system is not good traditionally at delivering things to our whole population. You've got to have the strongest possible local national partnership and I, I think we need more effort to, get, to make that happen.
0: Alex, you want to come in? I'm going to throw a question at you as well from Baroness Rawlings which is Brexit. Will Brexit make this more difficult to get the vaccine? Will we have to pay tariffs on the, on the vaccine? Uh, yeah, is there a, yeah, we know that the Pfizer one is being manufactured in Belgium rather than here. Does that make a difference?
2: Yeah, so just on, on that point, um, uh, we, we're not expecting there to be tariffs on the vaccine or, or other medicines. Um, so, you know, g- good news on that um, score. Um, that said, uh, there is there must be at least a chance that some of the disruption associated with uh, particularly a no deal uh, Brexit, whether that's some um, to supply chains or uh, or um, uh, logistics in Kent or Northern Ireland might have something of, of an effect on that. <clears throat> It's something we, you know, we were conscious of uh, uh, last time round for the no deal planning. Uh, lots of the most important vaccines coming by air, so it's uh, and, and medicines coming by air, so it's a sort of less of an immediate um, problem. But there's 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 a there's definitely a sort of logistical question mark there. The point I was going to make off the back of uh, uh, to what Tom was saying, and I it's it's fascinating to to hear what he was saying, and all all sounds very. Uh, all too plausible um uh, was uh, the, the other thing i'm not sure we're, we're just beginning to grapple with now is the sort of policy and society impact in the short to medium term around the vaccine and uh, the this sort of slightly this debate about um you know, vaccine passports or uh, uh, or certificates uh who has access to what prioritizing economic activity or the most vulnerable uh, these feel these are these are quite kind of profound social and uh, uh ethical questions as well as, uh, as, as, as well as logistical and, uh, and, and practical uh, ones. And I'm not sure we're, we're quite yet properly thinking through what that's going to mean for the next six months or so.
0: So maybe we should be having debates about that rather than debates about whether scotch eggs are substantial <laughs> meals or not, which seems to be where the public debate is at the moment. I just wanted to end up um, with a sort of third risk. We've talked about uh, about Brexit. We've talked about covid uh, I think in the Cabinet Office's Three Horse People of the Apocalypse scenario, they also threw in winter flooding. And I just wondered, uh, maybe to Tom and, and Claire, who've both been there for floods as well, just, you know, is there a risk that, of sort of localized disruption magnifying that? And if Leeds, say, Tom was hit by a further sort of winter floods, which you are a bit vulnerable to some of the time, Would that actually sort of derail lots of this stuff? Can you actually manage flooding incidents in a COVID secure way? Um, Or should we not worry about that? Is that all going to be fine? Tom?
3: Um, I I think that is a real risk and a real worry as well. And it's that concurrency point again. Um, I think probably, you know, we we have the same mutual aid um, support arrangements that Claire mentioned in Whitehall, you know, at a local authority level but i think it is probably some if it hit the wrong local authority at the wrong time i think you would be in a really serious situation um you know I, and i i i think that adds into the you know the impact on kent um you know of the uh you know of of the the brexit scenario is 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 a concern as well um you know but yeah, so, so yes, I think that is a risk and it's one that we're all live to and, um, and it's back to this sort of exhaustion point because the people you'd be relying on are the same people who were all, we're all desperate for people to have a bit of a break, um, over, over Christmas, between Christmas and New Year. If we were to get, um, you know, flooding during that time, that's probably the biggest worry of probably every local authority in the country at the moment, I would say.
0: Claire, do you have any thoughts about that you know would this put
1: the system under impossible strain so i think I mean I think it would put the system under a huge amount of strain i mean as as as, as Tom says, you know government routinely plans for multiple things to happen um and it's a you know it's a regular part of any kind of emergency planning that you don't just say what you know how how would we manage with this particular uh, situation but what would happen if something else came along on top. In a sense, so when, you know, so early on when we were planning for Brexit, there was always this sense of, well, what might happen alongside it. I don't think anyone envisaged anything of the scale of COVID. So, to some extent, um, you know, the country is already dealing with something far bigger than anything it could have imagined, and there is a, you know, there is a real um, moment of realization, just you know, that people do do continue to rise to challenges beyond what you would think they could possibly do. And I think, you know, Tom's point about just, you know, just standing back and saying what has been achieved is incredible. So on the one hand, I'm, you know, hugely... Uh, reassured to see what people can do. Um, and I think if there were to be flooding, there would be, you know, a set of people would find another reserve and get on with it. But I think if this, this you know, the more we have to do it, the more it calls on people, um, you know, the more people end up in a situation of extreme exhaustion. And the only other thing I think to say, which I think is going to be an interesting question, and again, I think Tom touched on it earlier, is the whole relationship between local government, central government. You know, a lot of, lots of things like flooding incidents were traditionally managed very much at a local level. The kind of, you know, all of the gold command groups are very much at a local level. There's been a sort of growing accretion of national interest I know, more things I think over the last 10 years have been managed through the national COVID system, that's partly because there's a kind of public appetite for the government to be seen to be doing things, for you know, the military to be coming in and filling up sandbags or whatever it might be um, and that's then fed through into planning for things like uh, Brexit and for COVID and I think there's an interesting question about whether or not the, the, the fact that you know, a lot of the COVID planning felt very centralised when you might get better, better results by doing things at the local level, whether that is the end result of this process. But I think there's a real opportunity to stand back and say what, is, what can be done at, at local level, but what needs to be there in terms of you know the authority and the resources for, lo- for local government to do the maximum and therefore for national government only to do those things that it has to do.
0: Okay. I'm, uh, I think we've run out of time. gone over our limits, and I don't want to uh, tie up People for <laughs> any longer. But I think actually one of the really interesting things there is both Claire, Jonathan, Tom, uh, Alex have drawn attention to some of the big longer term issues, you know, the relationship between central and local government, how you actually put some meat on the big sort of devolution agenda. Think about execution, which central government's not necessarily displayed itself as being that good at. Think about actually the big issues Jonathan's raised about where do we really want the economy to go Longer term, how can we do that? So there are huge, big opportunities. I think the one thing we have to hope for is, as Claire was talking about people standing back, that people uh, at some point next year get the chance to stand back and look at some of these longer term issues. Because so I think uh, 2020 has been an amazing year. I think early 2021 uh, needs to be an amazing year if we're really going to take uh, some of the opportunities to uh, restore trust in government by getting the vaccine rollout out massively right. Um hope Baroness Rawlings is reassured about the tariff point, um, but we uh, hope it really is a year of building back better and reorientating uh, to all those longer-term challenges. So, I'm going to thank my panelists, uh, Jonathan Portes, Tom Reardon, Claire Moriarty and Alex Thomas. And remember, if you enjoyed this IFG podcast, you want to know more about Brexit preparedness, there is a big chat with the Brexit team on Brexit readiness and more events coming on that Uh, so watch out for those and of course a welter of things discussing the response to COVID so do go and find those and listen as well and thanks very much for listening to the end Uh, and now we can all go and take a breather and relax for a couple of minutes at least thank you very much